Join with me in prayer as we begin this lesson. Dear Father, we thank you for your word, which is a treasure to us, a a wealth of of knowledge, of saving knowledge, of revelation, that we might know you, that we might know how to come to you, that we might be saved and live before you, to walk with you, and that in this word you have given us uh, salvation and the hope of glory. We pray that you would instruct us in your word this day to apply it to our hearts by the Holy Spirit that we might remember and cherish these things and be encouraged. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we come to the final chapter in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 33 of the final judgment. If you're following along in the hymnal, that will be page 867. 867. This is a truth that we confess every week in the words of the Creed. Uh, when we speak of Jesus Christ and his state of exaltation, you know, having been raised, not only is he raised, he's also ascended. Not only that, he's, he's currently sitting at the Father's right hand, but also we say, and he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead. Uh, and that is the, the theme of this chapter of the Confession of Faith. Let me begin with Article 1, with the first paragraph. God hath appointed a day wherein he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ, to whom all power and judgment is given of the Father, in which day not only the apostate angels shall be judged, but likewise all persons that have lived upon earth shall appear before the tribunal of Christ to give an account of their thoughts, words, and deeds, and to receive according to what they have done in the body, whether good or evil. So God has appointed a day. There is a day coming. We'll get to the fact later that we don't know when this day is, but we do know that there is a day that God has appointed it. God will judge the world. And how will he judge the world? He will judge it, first of all, in righteousness. You know, many of the Psalms speak of that. But he will judge it by Jesus Christ to whom all power and judgment is given of the Father. So the Father has given all power and judgment to Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ in his office as mediator, as God and man, um, not simply as the fact that he is God with the Father and the Spirit, but particularly in that office as the Redeemer, who has this mission to, to bring the world uh, and to bring creation into subjection to God, that he has this um, exaltation by being made the judge, but also uh, this, this work that he does. Uh, we, we can turn to Acts 17, for example, where the Apostle Paul is speaking to the Athenians in Greece, and he is preaching of, of the true God as opposed to the idols, and how we shouldn't think of him like something we create, but rather is the one who gives life and breath to everything. And then in verses 
30 through 31, he calls them to repentance and speaks of this coming day. He says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So he had shown all the world that this man was, to, was, was the one to whom this had been committed, that he had been appointed judge of the living and the dead, and uh, he had been a, uh, this had been made manifest to all by him being raised from the dead. And now there will be a day in which he will raise the dead and judge all the world. And he will judge the world in righteousness. So it is a man who will judge uh, all the world. Of course, one who is both man and God, uh, our Lord Jesus Christ. We could also go to John chapter 5. Of course, the application being that all should repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Because he is uh, the, the judge on that day. John chapter 5. In John chapter 5, uh, we can begin with verse 22 where jesus says for the father judges no one but has given all judgment to the son that all may honor the son just as they honor the father um, he speaks here of um, how judgment has been committed to the son and this is part of his office and we can go further to verses 27 through 29 and he has given him that is the Father has given the Son authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. The Son of Man is particularly a, a title of his messianic office. Think of the revelation in, or the vision in Daniel 7 where the Son of Man comes to the ancient of day to receive a kingdom. Uh, well, Jesus is the Son of Man, so therefore he has authority to execute judgment. So do not marvel at this, he says, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I spoke of this passage last week because it speaks of the resurrection of the dead, both the just and the unjust, but it's also worth quoting here because that's the time of a judgment, that there is a division of mankind, that Jesus is the one who calls them forth and sends them to their, to their destinies, to the resurrection of life or the resurrection of judgment. And so who will be the judge? God. God by his grace. By his son, Jesus Christ. It, particularly the second person of the Trinity. God, all persons of the Trinity, will judge the world, but particularly through Jesus Christ in his office as the Christ as the, the mediator. This is part of his mission, which he came for, and he has ascended on high now for, and he's going to complete this mission on that final day. He is the mediatorial king, is one way that we speak of this. And so there's this day, as it, John 5 even calls it an hour, right? A particular time when Christ will return, the dead will be raised, and the final judgment will occur. These things aren't separated by, you know, thousands of years or, you know, large group parts of time. It's one event when there will be a reckoning at his 
return, which fits with the parables, right? When the master returns, there will be a, a reckoning. And it will be not for just those who are alive at that day, but for all, the living and the dead, uh, who will be called to account. Um, the third paragraph of, the, of this chapter, as well as the larger catechism, connects the day of judgment with Christ's coming and with the resurrection. Remember what the angel said when Jesus ascended into heaven? When Jesus went before the disciples and they saw him rise and be taken into the clouds? What did the angels tell the disciples as they stood there looking up? What are you looking at? What are you looking at, right? This very same Jesus who you see rising and coming again the same way. Something. Yes, yes, yes. Um, I'll quote it here just to be exact, but that's the right message. As Jesus ascends, they say, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So the Bible clearly uh, refers to a, a literal, physical coming of Jesus Christ from heaven to earth, just as he went from earth to heaven. Uh, and so this is something that is yet future, that has not happened yet, you know, that we look for, for that will be a great day with lots of things happening at that time. As the, this paragraph that we read goes on to say, in which day not only the apostate angels shall be judged, but likewise all persons that have lived upon earth shall appear before the tribunal of Christ to give an account of their thoughts, words, and deeds, to receive according to what they have done in the body, whether good or evil. So, First of all, there's going to be apostate angels, fallen angels, who will be judged on that day. Uh, you can think of Jude 6, for example. Uh, Second Peter would talk about this as well. But Jude 6 says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So it speaks of this great day and... Uh, these fallen angels are being held for judgment on that great day. But not just fallen angels, it's also a day in which all men who have ever lived, all men, women, children, and all humanity will come before the tribunal of Christ. Uh, let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 9 through 11. The Apostle Paul says, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But we, what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. So we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Um, and to receive a, you know, what is due for what he has done in the body. We will be restored back to our bodies to receive in our bodies what is due for what we did in the body, whether good or evil. And there's application here too, obviously, you know, that we serve Christ now, uh, knowing this, but also we, knowing the fear of the Lord, persuade others that we call sinners to repentance to receive salvation because they too will appear before the judgment seat. Of Christ. Ecclesiastes speaks of this. It's not just a New Testament thing. 
Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 17. Ecclesiastes 12, 17. No, it can't be 12. There's no chapter 12 in Ecclesiastes. No, there is. There is. I was covering it up. (laughs) Verse 14. That's the last verse. Um, For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So every deed will be brought into judgment, will be examined. Uh, There's nothing that escapes God's sight that he knows even the secret things, and so there will be an account. Uh, We can think of Romans chapter 14 as well. Romans chapter 14, verse 10 through 12. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Uh, And so we'll have to to give an account of ourselves. Now we could go on. There's other passages. Jesus speaks of not only our actions, but, but words as well. Um, that there is this day that uh, will happen. All of us will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, the next paragraph gets into what are the sentences? What, what happens? What is the, the judgment? We know that it's going to happen from the first paragraph. Well, uh, what's going to happen on that day? Let me go ahead and read paragraph two. The end of God's appointing this day is for the manifestation of the glory of his mercy and the eternal salvation of the elect and of his judgment, sorry, of his justice and the damnation of the reprobate who are wicked and disobedient. For then shall the righteous go into everlasting life and receive that fullness of joy and refreshing which shall come from the presence of the Lord. But the wicked who know not God and obey not the gospel of Jesus Christ shall be cast into eternal torments and be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So what's the, what's the end? What's the telos? You know, what's the, what's the, the purpose of this day? Well, it's twofold. There's the manifestation of the glory of his mercy, because those who are saved in that day, who are spared from judgment, who, are, uh, who receive the kingdom, do they receive that because they've done nothing wrong? Do they receive, do they, are they spared from judgment because they've done no sins? No. 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 Are they, do, are they, do they receive the kingdom and are spared from judgment because they've done enough good things that it, the bad things don't matter anymore? No, no. Why do they receive glory and are not judged? Why is it? Is it because of things they've done? No. His mercy. His mercy. It's to the glory of God's mercy. 
that God has given a way of salvation that we should take advantage of now, right? Now, we do receive this by faith, but we receive it as a gift, you know, not something that we earn or uh, something that we produce of our own, but rather it is God's mercy that is manifest that we receive Christ. And so that's our sins, which would have condemned us on that day, are, are forgiven, so they are not held against you on the day of judgment. And instead, the righteousness of Christ is imputed to you, and so that you are declared righteous on that day. And the good things that you have done are also received in Christ through his mediation, not as the basis for your um, salvation, but as testimonies that you are indeed those who belong to Christ, as uh, things that God is, is pleased with, that he delights in, and even rewards. Not that they deserve the reward, but that because he is generous to reward that which he has even produced in his people. Um, and so, uh, the righteous shall go into everlasting life and receive that fullness of joy and refreshing that shall come from the presence of the Lord. They can be described as those who have done good because those who receive Christ indeed will do good. Um, that, that does mark them, that does identify them, but that's not the, the basis for their salvation from judgment. Uh, but it's appropriate to call them the righteous uh, on, on two accounts, or those who have done good. And what is it they receive? Well, not judgment, not condemnation, but rather uh, everlasting life, joy, not just joy, but fullness of joy. You know, the most joy, joy and refreshing. And where does that come from? From the presence of the Lord, that you will always be with God in a more direct way than we experience even now. And so uh, there is that which demonstrates the glory of God's mercy. But the wicked... Now, notice the wicked are the reprobate. They are not the elect. The only reason the righteous have received Christ is because God has chosen them. It's the eternal salvation of the elect. The, the reprobate whom God did not choose are judged, but are they judged simply because God did not choose them? They are judged because they are wicked and disobedient. They're being judged for their sins. It is God's justice that is being displayed in, in their condemnation. And so because they are wicked and disobedient, because they know not God and obey not the gospel of Jesus Christ, they are cast into eternal torments to be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. And so rather than being received into God's favorable presence, rather uh, they receive God's uh, judgment and uh, eternal torments. So it's eternal destinies either way. Same words for everlasting life, for everlasting torment. The weeping and gnashing of teeth uh, is going to be experienced and will be uh, decided, will be pronounced on that day. Now, we could go to a number of Bible passages. Think of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Actually, let me... There is, sorry, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, but let me go to Matthew with the time that we have, because there is a lot in Matthew 
24 and 25. Matthew 24, the beginning of the chapter, Jesus is speaking of the destruction of Jerusalem, a, a judgment within history um, that would be uh, that would happen, that would take place. But in verse 36, he transitions to speak of the second part of the disciples' question, uh, the sign of his coming and of the end of the age. And uh, from that point forward to the end of chapter 25, he speaks of this second coming and the judgment to come. He speaks of the parable of the servant in verse 45 and onward, which I think especially is applicable to people like the apostles, uh, to to ministers, because it's a servant who's said over other servants, and how does he treat the servants, and is he going to be a faithful servant in God's household? How will the master find him when he returns? Um, if the wicked servant says, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um, that's one way that Jesus describes hell. Um, that it's uh, not simply a place where people are annihilated, but it's, it's a conscious agony, weeping and gnashing of teeth. But if, you know, earlier on, if the master, the servant gives them their food at the proper time, blessed as that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. There's also the parable of the ten virgins. Uh, the ten virgins all profess to be waiting for the coming of the bridegroom. This, you know, is uh, a parable of the visible church, and, but... Not all of them have uh, the oil to be prepared. Some are foolish and some are wise. And the bridegroom is delayed and they sleep, which I think is kind of an analogy for, for death. And they're woken uh, on the, 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 the day of the bridegroom's coming. And they would have had to already prepare before they fell asleep. Who had the oil and who, was, who, who did not have it? The bridegroom comes... And the five wise ones are able to welcome him in and go with him into the marriage feast while the others have, go out to buy the oil and they come back and the door is closed and they're left outside. Again, another image of, of heavenly glory with Christ forever. It's a joyful time. It's a wedding feast. Um, whereas those who were not prepared to receive the bridegroom uh, are left outside, outside in the cold, outside with the weeping and gnashing of teeth, not in the favorable presence of the Lord. And then there's a parable of the talents. Again, it's the idea of the, the Lord going away for a while. What are they going to do in the meantime? There's some who, who take the money given to them and, and use it and make more talents and are, are faithful servants. And when the master returns... There's a reckoning, and he speaks of those good servants, and he says, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So we have this fullness of joy and, and being with, with our Lord, and a co commendation even from the Lord. Uh, well done, good and faithful servant. But then there's the unfaithful servant who doesn't do anything with the money. He just buries it. And what does the master do when he returns 
and finds him. You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You get a theme here, right? Two destinies, two ends. Well, and then finally, there's kind of not really a parable. It's just a scene. There's a little you know, metaphor occasionally used, sheeps and goats, for example. We're talking about people, not really sheeps and goats, sheep and goats. But there's a scene of the final judgment at the end of the chapter. The Son of Man comes in his glory. All the nations are going to be gathered there. So not just the visible church. The visible church will be judged. All those who have professed Christ, the hypocrites will be separated from those who have truly believed. But actually all nations will be gathered, all people, and he will separate them. And uh, to, to some, he will say, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then he mentions how they had served Christ, how they had served Jesus, uh, that they had welcomed him and given him food and drink and visited him. And they wonder, when did we do this? And he said, well, as you did it to, the, to my brothers, to fellow disciples, to my people, you did it to me. But then to others who had not demonstrated this uh, that had not demonstrated their faith in Christ by these good works. He says, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And at the conclusion in verse 46, it says, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So we have two ends based on your relationship with Jesus Christ. Does he know you? Are you his disciple? Um, or not. Um, if not, then you will suffer for your sins justly. Um, but there is eternal punishment or eternal life. Any questions about these first two paragraphs? There's just one more. Uh, let's go to the last one. As Christ would have us to be certainly persuaded that there shall be a day of judgment, both to deter all men from sin and for the greater consolation of the godly in their adversity, so he will have that day unknown to men, that they may shake off all carnal security and be always watchful, because they know not at what hour the Lord will come, and may be ever prepared to say, Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. And that's how the whole confession of faith ends, uh, with this expectation, this call to readiness and to hope uh, that uh, we have set before us. Do we know when Christ will return? Jesus says, no man knows the day or the hour. It will happen, but we don't know when it will happen. We know it's the last day. We know it's the last day. Uh, yes. And Jesus would have us certainly persuaded that there will be this day. And one use is that it deters all people from sin to know that there is a, a reckoning, that you're not going to get away from it. And even for those who are believers who are not resting upon their works, yet you will by no means lose your reward. Your Father in heaven will see this in secret, you know, that we ought to seek to please him. Um, 
And that our reward is, is, at the very least, the commendation of, of our God. Well done, good and faithful servant. But also for the greater consolation of the godly in their adversity. It's something that Paul refers to in Second Thessalonians. And uh, that we have this hope that even though we may suffer, even though the wicked may prosper for a time, there will come a day in which all will be made right. And also this day is unknown, so that we might not have carnal security, we might not uh, be like the foolish virgins or the wicked servants, um, and rather be watchful. Now, what does it mean to be watchful in this context? Does it mean that we go outside and just look at the sky? And, and does it mean just, we just go outside and look at the sky all day to see when Jesus is going to return? It's, that's not what we do. It's, not what it means. What does it mean to be watchful for Christ? Watchful in this context. To wait? What, do we, what was that? To be, ready. to be ready? What does it look like to be ready for Christ? How do we... Yes? Keep serving them just like the, the stewards that had money invested in. Right. Keep, keep serving him. How, do you want, how would you want your Lord to find you? You know, that we are to be ready for him by by serving him, by uh, believing in him, by uh, doing good to his people, um, to occupy our stations until he comes. And that's what it looks like to be watchful, to be alert, to not be slothful or um, unprepared. And so we should always be prepared to say, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. This is something we should look to with expectation. You know, in the creed we say we look for this. Uh, we want to hasten the day of his coming. It's not something for us to look at with dread. Um, rather, if we be in Christ, if we have faith in him, it's to be a day of, of gladness. And the culmination of all our hopes and of all the things that we have begun to participate in a little bit already uh, in this life. So any, any of questions on this chapter? Yep. There's a woman at 38, 39 weeks pregnant. Her bags are packed, casseroles are in the freezer, she's ready to go. In the meantime, she's doing school. She's taking the bag. She's continuing on, but she's ready to go. Sure, sure. <laughs> and all, all the birth pains are out of your mind once the, the, the baby is born for the joy of, of one come into the world to paraphrase uh, Jesus on another occasion but yes, uh, right now the creation's all groaning with, with the birth pangs of uh, looking for the, uh, the coming of Christ well, with that hope in mind uh, let's go ahead and pray Dear Father, we thank you for sending your Son and for the redemption that he has accomplished on the cross, that we might receive this gift by faith and so uh, work in hope, not in dread, that we might serve you, not as those in dread of judgment and condemnation, but rather as those who have been received and welcomed by you and have this inheritance laid up for us, uh, which is indestructible, 
We pray that you would make us ready and watchful, uh, eager to serve you and to fulfill your purposes in this age for the extension of your kingdom of grace, that the kingdom of glory would be hastened and that we would participate in its joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.